1 Samuel 17. We come today to one of the most well-known accounts in all of the scriptures, commonly just called David and Goliath. It's a piece of history that has endeared itself to the hearts of Christians across the world because of the nature of David's actions within the scope of this account. I'm not going to say too much by way of introduction this morning because as I mentioned, um, the message, we're going to try to get through all of 1 Samuel 17. It's a, uh, an ambitious goal, um, but I think we're going to do it. But it does mean that we need to hasten forward. So I'm going to be speaking at a pretty fast pace today. Much of it is narrative, so I'm just going to be giving you a good amount of narrative until such time as we get to the application this morning. But let's just dive right in. We are going to be walking through the text completely, so I'll encourage you to have your Bibles handy. And let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2. The Scriptures tell us, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Ezekah, in Ephizdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. Our scene opens today with the Philistines gathering together to encamp against Israel. And this is the first time that we have seen the Philistines come up in the text of 1 Samuel since the victory that God wrought through Jonathan back in chapter 14. That was only three chapters earlier, 14, but it seems like quite a bit has happened, doesn't it, since that particular text of Scripture. It was probably, as far as the text is concerned, several years previously. Since that time, Saul has waged a war, an entire campaign, in fact, against the Amalekites. David, we know, has been anointed king. Saul has become troubled in mind. All of these things have happened since that victory where Jonathan stepped out in faith. He trusted the Lord and the Lord used him to grant that victory. And then, of course, Saul um, had the, the men of Israel pursue. He didn't let them eat. They fell into sin. All of that, all of that, that happened. And then remember at the very end of that chapter, the scriptures tell us that uh, Saul left off from pursuing the Philistines mainly because he had made that, that oath that anyone who ate would die, and then Jonathan ate, and, and because he feared the people, he, the king did not kill Jonathan, and so he knew that he didn't have the Lord's blessing anymore on the battle, so he had to step away from the battle, and, and God's enemies couldn't be defeated, all because of the sin that was going on in the land. So this is the next time that we see the Philistines. The Philistines have regathered, they've gotten their strength back up, their morale is back up, and they have now encamped again against the nation of Israel. And the text tells us that the Philistines are gathered in Shoko, which is a, a city in Judah. So this is Israel's land. They have encroached into Israel. And Israel was pitching on the other side of that valley, and it's called the Valley of Elah. And verses 3 and 4 tell us this. The Philistines stood on a mountain on the, on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them, and there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So these, these two armies now, you can see it, they're encamped on two hills, on two mountains, and there's a valley in between. And the scriptures tell us that out of the camp of the Philistines came a man, his name was Goliath, and he's described in the King James Version as a 
champion or as the Philistines champion. In the Hebrew text, this word literally means a man between two. And it carries with it the idea that this man was born and raised for one purpose. The Philistines knew that he was going to be a big man because he comes from a family of giants. And they said, this guy is going to be the guy that will fight our battles for us. He's going to be the guy that stands between us and that army and and offers to do this one-on-one battle thing in order that the armies don't have to fight. And because he's big and strong and he's and we're going to train him up to fight... Um, He's going to win these battles. And so that is the entire purpose, as far as the the text describes it, of Goliath. He is there to be a man between the two, the Philistines' champion. We then get to the description of this man, Goliath, and the scriptures tell us that he was six cubits and a span. The length of a cubit is somewhat debated because it has changed several times within the course of history. Um, depending on who was king at any given time, the cubit would change. Um, there was a royal cubit, there was a, an official cubit, all of these different cubits. But generally speaking today, the accepted length of a cubit is 18 inches or one foot and a half. At 18 inches, six cubits would be nine feet tall. And a span is generally considered about six inches or so. So this would place Goliath at about nine and a half feet tall. Now, there are various disagreements about this, and they come from two different angles. The first angle is, as I mentioned, the length of a cubit. Some people will say a cubit is 16 inches, which, of course, would put Goliath uh, well below the nine-foot range. And then some people say a cubit is actually 20 inches, which would put Goliath above 10 feet tall. So it really depends on what a cubit is, and we can't fully know. Uh, We also have some um, discrepancy in the texts. Uh, When you look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, um, you, you find in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that it's not six cubits, it's four cubits. Also, Josephus, the, the um, Jewish historian, said it was four cubits. And then one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found also had written four cubits. And so there are various texts out there that indicate that it was four cubits, not six cubits. And that could be a little bit troubling, except that we here at Legacy Baptist Church believe in the preservation of Scripture. And we recognize that the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament was compelled by Jews who um, had a great uh, respect for Hebrew, for Jewish tradition. And sometimes Jewish tradition would override the text. And Josephus loved the Septuagint. And so if the Septuagint said it, Josephus was going to say it. And the Dead Sea Scrolls becomes a little more troubling, and that's where we simply fall back on the fact that we recognize at Legacy Baptist Church, the Scriptures tell us that God will preserve His Word. And if God inspired His Word but did not preserve His Word, then the inspiration was really profitless. If we don't have God's Word today, if God did not give us the means by which to know what He wanted from us, then how can He hold us accountable to it? And so we believe at Legacy Baptist Church, and of course it's a discussion for another day, Many of, most of you have heard it, that God has providentially inspired His Word and then preserved His Word in the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. And so He preserved His Word through men, through uh, uh, godly men, until such time as the printing press came about. And then when the printing press came about, 
that God was then able to indelibly preserve His Word in the Greek and the Hebrew through print. And now we have good translations of the preserved Greek and Hebrew. And that's what we rely upon today. And so we would believe that six cubits and a span is right because we believe that the Lord has preserved His Word through the Hebrew text. And that would put Goliath somewhere around nine and a half feet tall. We continue to see his description in verses 5 through 7. And notice what the text says. And he, that's Goliath, had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass, and he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders, and the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. So we continue to get this description of Goliath. According to historians, a shekel was approximately two-thirds of an ounce, and that would make 5,000 shekels, or excuse me, um, uh, yes, a 5,000 shekel coat, approximately 200 pounds for his, for the, the chain mail, the coat of armor that he was wearing. And of course, it would go well below uh, just his waist and, and yet yeah, approximately 200 pounds. And then as we look at the spear and the head of that spear being 600 shekels, that would be about a 23 pound spearhead. And so he's got this big old helmet, he's got this coat, and then he's got the greaves, which would, which would protect his legs. And then he has um, a solid piece of armor, more than just the chain mail that goes across his chest area. And um, then he's got this spear. And uh, if you can imagine that that kind of a weight for a spearhead, um, even an armored opponent, a 23-pound spearhead being thrust at you would do a great deal of damage. So he is an imposing figure, and so much so that he didn't even carry his shield with him. He carried everything else, and then he had a, a guy walking in front of him to carry his shield until such time as he was ready for the battle. And this man was an imposing figure. Now, this was not the kind of guy who is, is ready for a long battle. This is not the kind of stuff that you would wear to get on a horse and battle for an extended period of time, to be on the field running back and forth battling. This is not that guy. This is the guy who stands there one-on-one, -on -one, looks at you, throws a 23-pound spear through you, and then walks back and calls it a day. So that's why his, what his armor can be so heavy is because he really didn't have to... It, he, he wasn't ex expected to have a long fight here. This was just go out, do your thing, come back and be done. And so his armor could be heavier than the typical soldier. But as you think about even just a couple hundred you know, years ago and, and chain mail and all of that, um, 250 pounds of armor for a man that's 10 feet tall would probably not be too excessive, too outside of what we might expect with the weight of all of that metal and such. We read the challenge itself that Goliath gave in verses 8 and 9. And the text tells us this. And he, that's Goliath, stood and cried unto the armies of Israel... And said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then ye shall be our servants and serve 
us. So that was the concept of this one-on-one battle, that these nations would face each other, but instead of having to go through all of the, the, the expense, both human life and uh, monetarily, of, of a battle, of bloodshed, you just choose one champion. And each man chooses a champion, and the deal is this. He fights me, or he, the one guy fights the other guy, and whoever wins, that army gives up. Yields, says, okay, you have won this battle. So it's kind of like a fast track system, saving a bunch of lives in order to determine who's going to win the battle. And by doing so, um, you, you not only have saved a bunch of lives, but then, you know, it's, it's settled quickly and decisively and it doesn't drag on and all of that stuff. So that's the idea here. But notice the intensity of his words here. Notice the nuances of his challenge. He calls himself a Philistine, but what does he call them? Servants of Saul. He, he basically is saying, you're just Saul's lackeys here. And, and he says, why are you putting yourself in array? In other words, every day, and we'll see this as we get further in the text, every day Israel got all of the army together and they put themselves in battle formation and they were ready to go and they stood there. They stood there and they waited for something to happen. And, and Goliath comes out of the Philistine army and he says, look, why are you doing this every day? Just send one person out to me and we'll just get this over with and then we'll be done. This doesn't need to happen. So he's mocking them and, and he interprets their silence. He interprets their refusal to send someone out as cowardice, as an admission that there's no one among them that is heroic enough to even stand before the Philistines. No one who has enough honor. He says, I'm a Philistine. If you want to fight the Philistines, fight me, you servants of Saul. One can imagine how demoralizing that must have been to to see a man come out and challenge you. And every single day, no one accepts that challenge. And every day that this happens, it's like the army is just being more and more demoralized because there's just no one that even has the courage to stand before Goliath. And notice what he says here in verses 10 and 11. He says, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all the Israel heard those words of the Philistine, scriptures say they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The reaction of Israel is exactly as I just said. They are becoming demoralized. The text uses two words to describe this demoralization. The first word literally means broken down. Uh, Dismay is a very good translation of it. Just feeling more and more hopeless every day. It's the idea that every day they get up and maybe their shoulders are just hunched a little bit more. They're just so dismayed. And then the second word literally is just the, that, that word that's the common Hebrew word for fear. That they were, they were not just dismayed. They were not just demoralized. But they were afraid. They were afraid of this guy. If this is, if this is the champion, I mean, can we fight the whole, the whole army? If we can't even fight this one guy, what are we going to do when this battle actually takes place? And those of us who understand the nature of, of war, or even, even as you, you carry it over into, say, sports, um, as you understand the nature of, of contention, whether it's fighting, whether that's football, whatever it is, we all recognize the importance of morale, right? 
The, the morale of a team, the morale of an army can literally change the entire course of the contention. A, a weaker army with great morale can be victorious. A weaker team with great morale can find a way to win. And so as the morale was, was waning here, Israel is just, they're just completely sunk in the mire of despair. And this brings us to David. We, we cut away from the battleground and we cut to this little place called Bethlehem. And the scriptures tell us in chapter, uh, in chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And we've already seen the introduction to Jesse. We've talked about Jesse. If you want a, a reminder of that, all my sermons are online, I remind you, and you can, you can get um, a primer as to who Jesse was. And he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next unto him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. So we cut away to Jesse, Jesse who has eight sons, Jesse who is the father of David, Jesse who we've seen already as um, David's father when Saul came to anoint David to be king. And there he's still living in Bethlehem, Judah. And the scriptures tell us that at this time in history, he went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. In other words, Jesse, if, if anybody in Israel was looking at Jesse, they'd say, yeah, he's an old guy. He was not fit for battle. All right? He was beyond the age of fighting. He went among men as an old man in those days. And so it wasn't he that was going to go fight the battle. It was his sons that were going to go fight. And specifically, the text tells us that his three oldest sons went to fight with Saul. Their names being Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah. And the scriptures tell us, but David went in verse 15 and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Now, David, on the other hand, according to verse 15, he'd returned from Saul. So remember, last time the scriptures tell us that Saul commissioned David to come and to play for him so that the evil spirit of the Lord would depart from him when it came upon him, when David played his harp and uh, soothed his soul. And so David had gone and he'd done that. And the scriptures tell us that now he has come back from that and he's going to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And remember, we said last time that as we considered the scope of those last three verses of 1 Samuel 14, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 16, um, verses, specifically verses 21, 22, and 23, we find that that's a summary of David's relationship with Saul. It's not chronologically David's relationship. So when it says that Saul loved David and made him his armor bearer, that hasn't happened yet. David is not yet Saul's armor bearer. David is not yet even known to Saul, much less beloved of Saul. David has simply gone there. He's played his harp. And now he's coming back home to tend his father's sheep. And you're beginning to get a feel perhaps at this point for the kind of man that David was. Really, our, our discernment of his character can only lead us in a couple of directions. You might go in another direction, but as I was thinking of it, our discernment of David's character can only really go in, in a couple of directions here. The first is he was either a total pushover or he had some very unique and 
tremendous character traits. He was either a total pushover who always got stuck with the sheep, who was anointed king of Israel, and after he was anointed the king of Israel, he got shoved back with the sheep. And then he was called by the king to play a harp in the king's court, and he goes there and he plays, and when he comes home, he gets shoved back with the sheep. Or, so he's either a pushover, or he has very unique qual- uh, qualities and character traits among young men. And those unique quality and character traits are humility and submission. Not a lot of young men have those. And maybe he watched the sheep, not because he was a pushover, but because someone had to do it and he was willing to do what he was told. Maybe he watched the sheep after he was anointed king because even though he was given this great honor, the honor didn't go to his head. He recognized he was still just a man who had responsibilities that were committed unto him. And he was determined to be faithful to that which his father had asked him to do. Maybe he watched the sheep after returning from King Saul, even though he had been in the court of the king because he had a sense of duty about him. He had a sense of honor about him. He loved his father. He wanted to do what was best for his family, which means he did his part regardless of how demeaning that part might have been. And I think as we continue to walk through the text, you'll find that David exemplifies the latter, not the former. That David was not just, he was not a pushover. He was not a weak man. He was a meek man. He was not a man who was willing to be bowled over. He was simply a man who was willing to humble himself. And in fact, that's a part of what makes David so great. A part of what makes him a man after God's own heart. So we are reminded now of David and his three son, uh, Jesse's three oldest sons, David's three oldest brothers, have gone to the battlefield. Verse 16 says, And the Philistines drew near morning and evening and presented himself, excuse me, Philistine, presented himself 40 days. This Philistine would be Goliath. For 40 days now, every day for 40 days, Goliath has come out and said, Hey, you cowards, send someone out to me. You're a bunch of cowards. You're just lackeys of Saul. Why doesn't he come out? Why don't you come out? Why doesn't anyone come out and fight me for 40 days? So, presumably, Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah went with Saul at the beginning of those 40 days, which means it's been at least 40 days since Jesse has seen his sons. And now he's beginning to wonder, where are my children? How are they doing? They're probably going to need more provision at this point. And that day, it wasn't necessarily common for the military to provide the food. Um, You would have your family send food to you on the battlefield. Um, This would not necessarily have been an uncommon thing, especially if you're not a strong nation. If you're not a strong nation, they can't provide food for you, or at least they can only provide very minimal Uh, A little bit of bread, a little bit of water. I mean, very minimal amount of food. And if you want anything else, your family's just going to have to get it for you. So the scriptures tell us in verses 17 and 18, Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. So, um... Jesse sends David with food for the brothers, with a gift for the captain of the thousand, 
and with a commission, which is this. See how your brothers are doing and make sure that they're safe. Give them the food, check up with them, make sure they don't need anything, make sure they're safe, and then give these gifts to their captain. Now first, we note just for reference that this valley in which the battle is happening is about 10 miles away from Bethlehem. So just for your reference, it's about a 10-mile 10, 10 journey that David will be making here. But there's also some other interesting things to note. It's, it's interesting to note that the three eldest brethren went to fight. But how many sons were there in Jesse's family? There were eight. So the three oldest are gone. That means there are five at home. David watches the sheep, but he's been pulled off of sheep watching duty to take these gifts to his brethren. Now, Jesse's motivation for using David here, other than that it was clearly of the Lord, is not stated. But like before, we might come to one of two conclusions on this. Either taking the food to his brethren was, even, uh, was an even shorter straw, was even lower down on the pecking order than watching the sheep. And so, well, it's already pretty bad that you have to be out watching the sheep, but um, now we've got an even worse job, so why don't you go do that instead? So it, it might have been that, but I think that as we understand culture and history, that's really not what's going on here. The sheep were a great responsibility. And the sheep were very important to a family in Israel. It was food. It was sacrifices, and it was likely also clothing. And so this would have been a huge responsibility that David had here. He wasn't pulling the short straw. He was probably there because he was the most diligent. And the task of sending, and if that's true, and David was there because he's the most diligent, then the reason why Jesse pulled him off instead of using any of the four of his older brothers was because the task of getting there and getting back was even more important to Jesse than these sheep. And so Jesse sent the young man that he trusted the most with this message. And so either of those perspectives could be seen. Again, I believe it's the latter, not the former. Either way, though, David's the man. He's the one that's going to take this message. We continue in verses 19 through 21. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle for Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. Our two scenes converge here. David in Bethlehem and the army and they're now converging into just David with the army. It is interesting to note here as we continue, excuse me, um, there we go, as we continue to think about David's responsibilities, did you note here that the scriptures say that David left the sheep in the hands of a keeper? I don't know if it would have mentioned otherwise, but I find it intriguing that it doesn't say David left his sheep in the hands of one of his other four brothers that are at home. I don't know quite what that means, but I don't think it speaks well for his brothers. I really don't. So David leaves these sheep and he comes to the battlefield. And the scriptures tell us that he arrived right around the time that these armies were going forth to the battle. 
and they were putting the battle in array. They were setting up their armies to stand there and simply wait until something gave. It, it must have been a, a extremely tense, right? So, so you get all set up for battle. You get your armor on and you get all lined up in the, in the battle. And then the Philistines have done the same. They get their armor on and they're all lined up. And it's kind of one of those situations that I guess um, you, could, you could parallel it to something today, you know, where you've got various armies and, and the guns are both pointed at each other. And if, if there's one person that pulls the trigger, then all of a sudden everything's going to just start happening. And it's kind of like that, where, where these armies are ready to go and they're tense because at any moment they could be thrown into a battle. At any moment things could give and, and they, they would be fighting for their very lives. And for 40 days they've gotten up every morning and they've stood there for hours on end, just waiting for something to happen, wondering if something is going to happen. Is this going to be the last day that I live? Is this going to be the day that the battle begins? Is it just going to be another day of having this Philistine stand up and mock us? What is going to happen? And so David comes as they're putting their battle in the array. They're getting themselves psyched up. It says they're shouting for the battle. They're getting ready to go. And the scriptures tell us in verses 22 and 23, that David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran to the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. So David gets there. He, he, he puts his, his carriage or his horse and everything, everything that he brought, mule, whatever he took, and he puts them aside. He goes to the battlefield. He's looking for his brothers. He's giving the gift to the captain. And he hears Goliath taunting Israel. I defy the armies of Israel this day. Send out a man to fight with me. Why, are you, you're just Saul's lackeys. Why won't you fight? All of these things. And, and David hears this. And we see in verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that's Goliath, fled from him. And we're so afraid. It's difficult to perceive the specific reason why they fled. I mean, Goliath has never actually come out to fight them as a, as a nation. He's only come out to challenge them. And then one man is supposed to go out and fight. But one of the possible reasons why they went and fled is because at this point, they're afraid that Saul's just going to come out of his tent and say, Hey, you, go. <laughs> and they don't want to be the you. They don't want to be the hey, you. So they are actually at this point hiding themselves from visibility so that no one would look around and say, hey, how about that guy? He's tall. He's big. He's strong. Hey, how about that guy? He's got a nice sword. Hey, how about that guy? He's got the best armor of us. So everyone's kind of scattering and hiding so that they, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you don't want to be called on, so you, you duck down. Uh, or whatever the case may be. That, that, I think that's kind of what's happening here. The text doesn't give us explicitly what's going on, but there's not a lot of other reasons why they would flee and why they would hide. Either way, the men of Israel said this, and presumably they said this to David, beginning in verse 25. Have ye seen this man that is come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him 
The king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and will make his father's house free in Israel. So as David is inquiring and learning about what's going on here, and this is a summary statement of what David's learning. We'll find out that he's going to start asking people about all of these things. Who is this guy? What is he doing? Why is he saying these things? And what will be for the man that defeats him? And so David's going to start asking these questions, but this is a summary and basically it's this. This is a big, angry man. He's come up to defy the nation of Israel. He, he wants to fight us. And if anyone kills him, the, uh, the, the, the king said that you would, he'd give you great riches and honor, that he would give you his daughter to marry, which of course means you'd be family of the king, and he would make your father's house free in Israel. In other words, no taxes. That the family of the, of the, victorious warrior would would be exempt from all of the taxes and tributes in Israel. Anytime there was something that had to happen, the king was going to take someone's land, couldn't take his land. The king was going to impose a new tax, couldn't tax that family. The king was going to name it, name whatever it would be. The king had no power over that family. He releases that family. He makes them free in Israel. And remember, that was one of the consequences of having a king, right? that Samuel said would happen, that he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to impose a tax on you, you will no longer be free, your land will be owned by the king, your, your children will be taken by the king. And so David begins speaking to the men, and verse 26 says, And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies? of the living God. And David is expressing deep frustration here that on two regards. Number one, that this Philistine would dare defy the armies of God. I mean, this is the God that has already told Israel that I will defeat every enemy you have. That if you will just trust me, your enemies will flee before you. That I will establish you. That I will fight your battles for you. And, and David is saying, similar to what Jonathan must have been saying in 1 Samuel 14, What's the deal? Why, why are we sitting back waiting when God has given us these promises? Remember, that's why Jonathan went and kind of kicked the Philistines and got him, got him, stirred up the hornet's nest in 1 Samuel 14. Because why not? Because God has already won the battle. We just have to fight it. So let's do this. And David is having the same mindset. I don't know where Jonathan is here. It's kind of interesting, right? Why, where did Jonathan go? He must have been sent on an errand. Dad was probably like, Jonathan, you're not coming to this battle. Remember what happened last time? Go. 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 I'm, I'm going to send you down to Egypt to get some fruit or something. You're, you're out of here. I don't know where Jonathan is, but, but, but Jonathan's not here. I, I can't imagine or else he'd be, he'd be out there in front of Goliath. I, I would have to assume. Or maybe, maybe it is that because of the curse that was put on Jonathan, Jonathan did not feel as though he could have the Lord's blessing. And so he wouldn't go. That's a possibility as well. Either way, Jonathan's not in the picture here. But the same mindset that Jonathan had in 1 Samuel 14, which is, how, who's this guy and how dare he come against the, Israel, the armies of Israel? But then I think there's also that, that little bit of frustration here that says, and why isn't anyone in Israel dealing with this? Why, are, why is Israel just sitting here and letting this man mock them and their God? It doesn't make sense to him because he's a man of faith. Verse 27 says, The people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. We've already saw that in verse 25. 
And the scriptures tell us that now the eldest brother of David speaks up. Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Eliab accuses David here of warmongering, of coming and abandoning the duties that he has been given so that he could come and taste blood. He accuses David of pride and trying to draw attention to himself and elevate himself above these other men in Israel. And can you see where this might have been coming from? Eliab witnesses David be anointed king. And now he's probably imposing upon David's character what he would do if he were king which is expect everybody to try to, you know, draw, try to draw attention to yourself, expect everybody to look at you. And so he's imposing that concept on David here. That, look, you're, I know your pride. I know the naughtiness of your heart. This is manipulation. You're just trying to get attention. You're just trying to get the focus to be turned on you. You're just trying to be that holier-than-thou David. You're just trying to be that, that guy. And I know it's all just pride, David, so just stop it. Well, David was really taken aback by this. The extent that the Bible reveals the character of David, we see no, no element of David's character that would reflect these charges. We see nothing in David's character that reflects pride. We see nothing in David's character that reflects a naughtiness of heart. And David says this in verses 29 and 30. What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again in the former manner. Literally, David says here, why is what I'm saying pride? Why is it a sinful pride for me to be upset that this man is defying Israel? Why is it sinful pride for me to expect that what God has promised, he will perform? That if a man got out there with nothing but a stick and fought Goliath, that if, if God was in it, that the battle would be won. Why is that pride, he says? Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause for me to wonder why some man in Israel hasn't accepted this challenge? Is there not a cause in me questioning that? Is there not a cause for me wondering why Israel is allowing Goliath to mock God? Is, is there not a cause for me to question? That's what David's saying here. These questions weren't attention-seeking questions. They were questions that needed to be asked. Why isn't somebody stepping out in faith and doing what God has promised he would do if we'll just do our part? Verses 31 and 32 tells us that eventually these words got back to Saul. And when the words were heard which David spake, they, that would be various people in the military, Rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him, that Saul sent for David. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So, so David comes up and Saul says, Look, I hear you're saying a lot of interesting things, David. Or whoever you are. He didn't know who he was at that point. And David says, Yeah, um, don't, don't allow Israel to be in this state of fear and dismay. I'll, I'll do it. I'll go fight him. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take on this responsibility. Saul is not convinced. Verse 33 says, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. You're still just a young man. Now remember, 
Saul does not know David here. David went and played for Saul, but how many great men, leaders, how many men of influence do you know that really personally know their servants? Um, th- David was just a minstrel. He was just someone, he may not have even been visible. He may have played from behind a curtain. And, and all that Saul heard was the music. When, when David was supposed to sit there behind a curtain all day and music, and then and he'd just start playing, right? So, so we don't even know that he's ever seen David's face, much less knew his name or cared anything about him. But the servant of Saul, remember in 1 Samuel 16, did say that this man who I know who can play well, he's a valiant man and he's a man of war. So Saul doesn't know it, but, but David is indeed a capable man. And the contrast here is this. You're a shepherd, you're a young man, you're still in your youth, and Goliath, he's a, he is a fully seasoned warrior who has been trained from his youth to take that 23-pound spear and turn you into a toothpick. And that, that's kind of the contrast that Saul is trying to paint here. And David says this in verses 34 through 36. Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. So these are, and in the Hebrew it makes it very clear, these are two separate instances. It's not that a lion and a bear came and tag-teamed on on a sheep here. This is two separate instances where a lion came and took a sheep out out of his father's flock and a bear came and took a sheep out of his father's flock. And in both instances... And then he actually transitions specifically to the, to the lion as he's describing this. In, in, the, in the instance of the lion, he went and he chased down the lion, he took the lamb back, and then when the lion rose against him, he grabbed the lion and he killed the lion. He says, and by the way, the same thing happened with a bear. The bear, in, as you read the Hebrew text, the bear is an afterthought here. All right? he, he, he's talking about the lion, which would, of course, be the king of beasts and the one that would be most impressive. Uh, both of them sound pretty impressive to me. But um, then he also is dealing with a bear. Oh, and by the way, I, yeah, I killed a bear at one point to save these sheep as well. He's a man that's showing diligence and that's showing um, courage and that's showing capability. And that's what he's trying to, to say here. Now, when he did this, remember, th- this would have been, you know, we don't know exactly when, but it, it could have been well past the, the day where he was anointed. Um, he may be 15, 16, 17 at, at that point where he killed those, or maybe not. We, we really don't know. But this is his proof. And he says here that the same is going to happen to this uncircumcised Philistine. Look, the lion is stronger than me. I killed him. The bear is stronger than me. I killed him because I was being used of the Lord to accomplish the responsibility that he had given to me. And I trusted the Lord to keep me safe. And I trusted him and it worked and they died. And the same is going to happen with this uncircumcised Philistine. And he uses that word uncircumcised there several times in the text to to just highlight the fact that this guy is not a believer in the true and living God. This guy has no relationship with the true and living God. This is a pagan. He doesn't know God. Why are we allowing this man who doesn't have God on his side to cause us who do have God on our side to be terrified? We have the God of the universe, the one who created Goliath on our side. Why are we afraid of him? He wasn't afraid of the lion. He wasn't afraid of the bear. And he says, look, I'm not afraid of this Philistine. 
And in fact, he says, Goliath is probably at a disadvantage, is the idea here. Why? Because he's defied the armies of the living God. The lion was just hungry. The bear was just hungry. This guy, and, and God gave me victory over them. But this guy? This guy is defying God. I think I'm going to be on pretty good footing to handle this guy with God's help. David said, moreover, verses 37 and 38, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. To which Saul replies, Go, and the Lord be with thee. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put on a helmet of brass on his head, and he also he armed him with a coat of mail. So Saul says, okay, I don't really have a choice here. Something's got to give. Let's just let this kid go out there and get pancaked. But here, maybe you can last a few minutes. Here's some armor. Here's a helmet. Take my armor. Verse 39 says this, David girded up his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go. He was getting ready to go, and he, he had not, for, or excuse me, and he essayed to go. He wasn't ready to go. He, he didn't want to. He says, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. That literally means tested them. And David put them off him. So he tries it on. And he says, you know what? I've never fought in this. It's constricting. It's different. I can't go into battle against this huge guy having never even tried to swing a sword in this armor. I don't know how it's going to react. I don't know what kind of range of motion I have. This isn't going to work. He takes the armor off. I can imagine it would probably be a little big too, right? I mean, Saul stood head and shoulders above anyone else in Israel, which probably means the, the armor would have been a little big on David as it stood. just wouldn't have worked right. So David says, nope, that's okay. I don't need it anyway. So verse 40 says, he took his staff in his hand, his shepherd's staff, literally, and chose him five th- smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a script, and his sling with the ones in his hand, and he drew near. So he's got a shepherd's staff in one hand and he's got a sling in the other and he's got five smooth stones. Smooth stones would fly well out of the sling. They would be the best stones in order to get the, to be the most accurate. And we find from Israel's history that when you think of the, the army of the Benjamites in, in the book of Judges, they said that they could sling a stone at a hair's breadth. In other words, as, as wide as a hair, they could hit that mark with a stone from a sling. So these guys, these shepherds, they knew how to sling these. And it was a battle um, weapon. It wasn't just a weapon that the shepherds used. We see from the book of Judges that this was a legitimate weapon to use in battle. So he's got his sling, he's got his staff, and he draws near to the Philistine. And now we'll, we'll read verses 41 through 44. The scriptures tell us this. The Philistine came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about, he saw David. And he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? Really? You're just going to try to smack me away with a stick? This is literally what he saw David as. This is, this is not what he expected to be the champion of Israel here. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, by the Philistines' gods. And the Philistine said unto David, Come to me and I will give thy flesh into the fowls of the air 
and the beast of the field. So he says, okay, well, here we go. I was kind of expecting this to be a challenge, but now there's this, this kid, and he's ruddy. He's got, kind of got the red hair, whereas most Israelites are dark-haired. And he's got a fair countenance, so he's a nice-looking kid. He doesn't exactly look like a warrior. He doesn't have a big scar down his face or anything. Uh, not, not, not intimidating, all right? And he says, well, you come to me, and here's, here, here's the deal. You, you come here, and I'll kill you, and then I'll feed your flesh to the birds and the animals. How's that sound? And this is David's response. Then said David unto the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee, and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day to the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all Israel, excuse me, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And David says, okay, I've got your proposition. I accept it. Here's my proposition. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut your head off. And it's not just your body. I'm going to give the body of the entire army of the Philistines to the, to the birds and to the beasts. And then the whole earth will know that God is God. And all of this assembly will know that God loves Israel. And we'll just do it that way. And so these are, this is the jarring back and forth. These, these are the terms of their agreement. And they're ready to go. So, verse 48 through 54. And it came to pass, the scriptures tell us, when the Philistine arose that and came and drew nigh to meet David. So the Philistine's there, and, and now he is, his shield bearer, he gets up his shield, and he puts his spear in throwing order, and he is getting ready to come and, and to, to destroy David. And it says that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. So he's running directly, beelining it toward Goliath here. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took thence the stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead, and the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword, that would have to be Goliath's sword, right? And drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled and the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until thou come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron, which would have been a Philistine city. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Shearim, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So David says, here's what I'm going to prove today, Goliath. I'm going to prove that the battle is not about swords and about spears and about shields and about armor. The battle is about God. And he runs toward Goliath. While he's running, he takes a sling. He slings that stone. It hits Goliath right in the forehead. And Goliath falls down. And David goes and he stands on top of him. He unsheathes Goliath's sword. He cuts off Goliath's head. And of course, this starts mass panic. The Philistines just immediately begin running. Israel begins running after them. Israel slays them and, and destroys them, follows them all the way to their cities in, in, in killing them. 
And then they come back and they spoil the tents because, of course, the Philistines had to leave the tents there. So they come back and they, they spoil the tents. They ransack the tents. They take everything that they want. And there's this great victory this day. And the scriptures tell us that David, of course, he left the body there to be eaten by the fowls and the, and the beasts, but he took his head. And at this point, Jerusalem is not actually under the control of Israel. Jerusalem is being lived in or inhabited by the Jebusites. And it would not be until David decides to run them out of Jerusalem that Jerusalem is in the hand of Israel. So this is looking forward, again, not quite chronological. But David keeps the head of Goliath and will one day put the head of Goliath in Jerusalem as the trophy of that battle. And then he takes Goliath's armor and he puts it in his tent. We'll find out later on in the text that eventually the sword of Goliath ends up in the tabernacle. And so um, whether all of his armor ends up in the tabernacle, whether that's what it means by tent there, because the tabernacle was a tent, or whether he kept the armor, but he, he ended up giving the sword to the tabernacle, we don't know. But this was the outcome of this fantastic day. Almost anticlimactic, right? All of this John back and forth, 40 days of preparation, big battle, and it's like, bink, and he falls and, and he's done. And there, uh, that's it. But that's, that's the way the Lord works, right? He doesn't need flashy armies and big battles. Uh, he doesn't need any of that. And then we conclude the text with verses 55 through 58. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, the captain of his host, so the captain of the army, the general, Abner, whose son is this youth? Abner said, as thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. I have no clue who this kid is. And the king said, inquire thou whose son the stripling is. This is nothing but a kid. And, you know, Goliath is dead and David's there holding the big head of Goliath. And who's this kid? And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. He's still dragging that along. And Saul said unto him, Whose son art thou, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So this is where we find the first formal introduction of David and Saul. David, he now knows who, who David is, where he's come from. He knows that he's of the tribe of Judah. He knows that he's lived in Bethlehem. He, he, he knows this kid and he immediately likes this kid. Uh, yeah, he, he likes David. And that's where we understand that he'll eventually make David his armor bearer and he will love David. Whew. 58 verses, we made it. But we have some application to get to today. What does this all mean for us? We've gotten through all of this text. What does it mean for us? Three points of application today. And it's just going to actually kind of be one long point of application. Point number one. Folks, God is bigger. We spoke just recently in Sunday school about the difference between God, about proving, difference between proving God and tempting God. Tempting God is when we ask God to validate His power, when we don't believe Him. So we ask Him to validate His power or we ask Him to validate His faithfulness or His promises. God hates to be tempted. God hates for you to step into uh, the relationship with Him without faith and say, God, if you want me to believe you, you better show yourself to me. If you want me to believe you, you better prove that you're actually powerful. You better prove that you're actually faithful because I don't really believe that. That's tempting God. God hates that. But God is more than willing. In fact, he wants to be proven. 
Proving God is when we believe God's promises and we step out upon God's promises. We say, God, this is what you've promised, so I'm going to put you on the spot because I know you've promised this and I trust it, so I'm going to do this because this is what you've said. We act in light of His faithfulness. We're putting God on the spot and expecting Him to come through, not because we don't believe God, but because we do believe God. That's the difference. Proving God is when we fully believe everything He's promised and we step out in faith. Tempting God is when we don't believe Him and so we're asking Him to prove Himself. God hates to be tempted. God delights in being proven because that's when He gets to show Himself for who He is. I'm faithful and here's a man that's actually willing to trust me. This one is, this kid doesn't believe I'm faithful. And here he wants me to prove myself. I've proved myself. Look around at creation. God's proven himself. Read the word of God. God's already proven himself. God has nothing to prove to us in that regard. The Bible shows us that God is bigger. Bigger than what, Pastor? Everything. God's bigger than the giants in your life. What do we speak of when we speak of giants in our lives? When I speak of this, I speak of situations like Goliath in Israel where something is standing between you and God's intentions for your life. That's what Goliath was doing, right? Goliath was standing between Israel and victory. Between Israel and God's best for Israel. Goliath was the thing that stood between God's people and the blessings God has promised. And God was waiting for someone to go out and to prove him faithful, to show their faith in God, to step out and to claim the promises that God had already made. And Goliath was the problem. He was the thing in the way of God's blessing. He was the thing in the way of God's intentions. Goliath was standing between Israel and God's promise of peace. Israel and God's promise of rest. In our lives Giants are things which stand between us and God's promise of fullness of joy, of peace, of unity, of love. These are things that God has baked into the Christian life. This is what God intends for us. Because you are a believer, if you are a believer, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by putting your full faith and trust in His finished work, this doesn't apply to you. It could if you'd accept Him as your Savior. But if not, it doesn't apply to you. But for we who are believers, God has ordained a way of living. Not necessarily, He hasn't ordained that you will make money, that you will um, be, uh, have a house, that you will have cars. He hasn't ordained any of that. That can come, that can go. But God has ordained something spiritually for you. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. The fruit of the Spirit, that's yours by right because you're a Christian. And you know, there are things that stand between you and God's design. Maybe it's between you and God's design in your, in your personal heart, uh, life. Maybe it's between you and, and God's design in your marriage. Maybe it's between you and God's design in the church. Maybe it's between you and God's design in the home with your children. Maybe it's between you and God's design with coworkers, friends, and family. There's things between you and God's best for you. Those are giants. Those are the Goliaths in our lives. And what we see from the text today is that God is bigger. The giant of sin. Sin separates us from God's blessing. God is bigger. 
If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ in this room, the giant of sin is overcomable through God. The giant of fear. Fear of doing what is right. Fear of telling others of Christ. Fear of doing what you know you need to do. God is bigger. And if you're a born-again believer, God's bigger than that giant. The giant of relationships. The giant of provision. The giant of obedience. Name the element of life or culture that seemingly poses insurmountable opposition to God's promise of a life of fullness of joy, to God's promise of a life of peace and happiness, uh, spiritually speaking, to God's promise of a life of spiritual blessing. Name the thing that's standing between you and what we can know is God is bigger. And I know that you know this. At least intellectually you know this. I know that you know that God is bigger than the seemingly insurmountable problems that stand between you and a life of spiritual success and a life of fullness of joy. But often the problem is not about what we know, but about how we see the situations we're in. Oftentimes we regard giants in our lives as our problem. And we seek to thus overcome the giants in our lives through our ability. I have sin in my life. That's my problem. It's keeping me between... It's keeping... It's, it's standing between me and God. And I need to solve it. So what? I need to be more disciplined. I need to change. I need to be better. And in a sense, it's true. We can't deny that we have a part to play. But just because we have a part to play in the battle doesn't mean the battle is about us. It doesn't mean that we're the one that has to fight the battle. When it comes to God's promises of spiritual success through joy and peace and love, the battle is God. See, the promises are God's. And if the promises are God's, then the results are God's. You don't have to fight the battle of overcoming sin. You have to yield the battle to God. We don't have to fight our giants. We, we, we need to be there, present, right? David was there. David was, he, he had to be willing to step out and do what needed to be done. He had to be willing to put his faith in God. He had to put himself out there and lay himself completely at the mercy of God. And then what happened? Then God fought the battle. Then God wrought the victory. Jonathan did the same thing. He had to take the step of faith of saying, yes, I believe God can overcome this giant. And then God did it. Miraculously, God did it. Name the giant in your life. And yes, you have to be a part of the battle. But the battle is not about you. The battle is about whether or not God is faithful. The battle is about whether or not the, what the Bible says is true. Does the Bible say they that are dead, they that are freed from sin, or they that are in Christ are freed from sin? Yes, the Bible says that. Which means we're dead to sin. Does the Bible say that if you're dead to sin, you need no longer live in sin? It does. Which means we need no longer live in sin. Does the Bible say that Christ has come to give us fullness of joy? It does. That means that we can have fullness of joy. And if there's something standing between us and that promise of God, it's a giant, and we need to step out in faith and trust God to defeat our giants. But we need to remember that the battle is the Lord's. If God's Word said you can live free from sin, you can. The very integrity of God's Word is at stake here. The very integrity of God is at stake here. And because of this, we can know that if we will be willing to step out in faith 
and do what God has told us to do, that He will do the rest. Because if He doesn't, then God's a liar. And if God's a liar, He's not worth serving. And if God's not a liar, then what God said can happen, can happen, if we will but trust Him. David said, there's a giant. Either God is a liar, or that giant will fall before whoever chooses to step out. And no one else will do it, I'll do it. And so he stepped out, and he said, you come at me with swords and spears and shields. I come at you in the name of the Lord. And this day the Lord will grant me victory because you've mocked Him. You've defied Him. This is about God. This isn't about me. I'm the tool. I'm the instrument. Yesterday we were working on Ed's house. Working against Ed's house, I guess. Not really on it, against it. We were tearing it down. And you know, we used hammers. We used pry bars. At the end of the day... Ed did not go and look at every hammer and say, Hammer, thank you. You did a good job today. Hammer, look at how well you held up. Hammer, you're a hard-working hammer. No, he thanked the men that were wielding the hammer because the hammer was just the tool in the hand of the wielder. And the Bible says we are simply tools in the hand of God. And if we will yield ourselves to be the hammer, to be the pry bar, then God will do great things with us. And by the way, that means no glory goes to us, right? No glory goes to the hammer. No glory goes to the pry bar. No glory goes to the tool. The glory goes to God because the victory is the Lord's. The victory is wrought in our lives and we receive the blessing, but God is glorified and God is victorious and God gets what He wants, which is the glory. So we know that God is bigger than our giants. We know that our giants are God's problem, not our problem. So then, why do so many of us live defeated? Well, we live defeated because we don't have faith. We live defeated because regardless of what we think we know, we refuse to take the step of truly casting our cares upon God and knowing that He cares for us. Or we refuse to take the step of obedience that God is asking so that He can bring about what He promised. God, you promised me victory over sin, and yet you're walking into sin. You're not separating yourself from sin. Well, if you don't separate yourself from sin, and you're stepping into sin on your own, well, how can God give you the victory? Yes, trust God to give you the victory, but take the step of faith. Regardless of how much we say that God is bigger than our giants, if we still see our giants as our problem and we try to face them on our terms rather than God's terms, then we're not going to defeat our giants. We try to solve the problem of giants on our own, our way instead of God's way. And in doing so, we reject the power of God in deference to our feeble strength. I can, I can redeem this relationship. I just need to do this. I can make our church go. I just need to do this. I can make my children do what they need to do. I can create a Christian home. I just need to do this. And so we have all of these carnal ways that we're trying to fulfill the things that we think we need to fulfill instead of just doing it the way that God has told us with the promise that if we do it God's way, that He'll do the work. That He'll grant the victory. 
God says that we can have fullness of joy. We can live free from anxiety. We can live free from sin. But rather than fall upon God in faith for His strength to resist sin, for His strength from temptation, rather than fall upon God in faith and leave our concerns in His hands when we're anxious, when we're fearful, when we're troubled, just rather than going to Him in prayer and leaving it all at His feet, we take it upon our shoulders. Well, God can't bless us until we do what He's told us to do. God says, leave it at my feet and it'll be there and I'll take care of it. But you know, if you won't place it at His feet, what can He do? God says, if you want to be victorious from sin, resist temptation. Ask the Lord's help. But if we're going to pursue sin with all of our might, what will God do? We say we can live in fullness of joy and we know we can and we believe it. But rather than living free from the guilt and oppression of sin through confessing and forsaking our sin, we persist in it. And thus we deny God the strength that He has for us to overcome. The whole of Israel stood on the battlefield and listened for 40 days as Goliath mocked Israel for their cowardice and weakness. Maybe some in the ranks of David did feel as David felt on that day, that God could give them the victory that He had promised. But when Goliath's voice was heard, they still ran and hid just like the rest. God was waiting for someone with enough faith not just to say, I think God could win this battle, but to go out there and fight it and to let God win through him. We've spoken individually, but this is a corporate thing as well. Maybe you see a giant that's opposing Legacy Baptist Church right now. Maybe you wonder why things aren't getting done that need to get done. Legacy Baptist Church isn't finding the victories that we ought to find. Or your family. Or whatever it might be in whatever context. And maybe you just keep saying, I wonder why no one's stepping up and doing it. In the church, it's usually, I wonder why pastor doesn't see this. I wonder why pastor's not stepping out. In a family, I wonder why dad isn't stepping out. Well, you know, that's ideal. In an ideal situation, you know who would have been on that battlefield? Saul. <laughs> right? The king would have been there saying, you have defied the armies of the living God. Now watch God defeat you. That would have been best. But in, in lieu of the fact that Saul was a coward and a self-righteous man, David said, I'll do it. Maybe, maybe God's just waiting for someone to step up in the family, in the church, in your business. Maybe God's just waiting for someone to step up and say, I'll... I'll I'll pursue what God has promised. I'll, I'll stand between my church and the giant in the land and slay that giant for them. I'll stand between my family and that giant and slay that giant for my family. In the name of God, for the glory of God, the way God has asked for it to be done. It's just as corporate as it is individual. Faith is not some special secret accessible only to a special few. Faith is accessible to all if only we will claim it. And in this room today, there are some battles. Some are fighting bigger giants than others are fighting, to be sure. In this room today are victors. Many who, with the help of God, as a tool in the Master's hand, have overcome the giant standing between you and the fullness of joy that God has promised.
Some of you are fighting those battles right now. You're fighting the giants in your life. This passage highlights the battle and reminds us that God is bigger than any giant we face. The battle is over the faithfulness of God. It's not over your capability. And this is key. God is looking for faith. He's ready to take the burden of that giant upon Himself and give you the power to overcome. But it begins with you being willing to align yourself with Him. To step out in faith, to justify God's Word in your actions. And then you know what? Watch Him work. Let's close in prayer.